Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, the live radio show where we talk to everyone building the new Vermont and protecting the old one. I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair and at the mic. It's Wednesday, June 28th, and today we start with the U.S. Supreme Court and the groundbreaking journalism done by the folks at ProPublica around the conflict of conflicts of interest and some would say outright corruption that have been a fact of life there for more than a decade, maybe more, and we didn't know it. We'll be joined uh, by Justin Elliott of ProPublica, who will explain the stories and what it means for the court and our democracy in segment two, we'll discuss solar energy with the folks at Green Mountain Solar and why it's easier than ever to move away from fossil fuels. And then at 10.30, stick around, because WDEV's own ornithologist and friend, Brian Pfeiffer, is going to join us to discuss his latest magical discovery, the bog elfin butterfly. As always, we take your calls. The number is 244-1777. You can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. And let us jump right into the United States Supreme Court. Our first guest rocked the world of courts and politics last April with several stories documenting special favors, travel, tuition reimbursements, tuition payments, private jets, yachts, and other favors for justices of the Supreme Court, notably Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. It turns out that Alito and Thomas have for years been accepting lavish gifts, trips on private jets, and free vacations from two billionaires, one with business before the court, without disclosing these gifts. One of the reporters uh, of these stories is here with us to explain everything. He is Justin Elliott, a reporter for, as I said, the nonprofit investigative reporting newsroom, ProPublica. Justin, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, first, I wonder if you could tell us, give us the 30,000-foot view of your journalism so far for our audience who may or may not have paid the kind of political junkie attention that the rest of us do. Sure. So what my colleagues and I have found is that uh, two justices, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Sam Alito, um, have these very uh, unusual relationships with uh, two different uh, billionaire Republican political donors. Um, And these relationships um, involve the justices, uh, as you mentioned, um, getting uh, free luxury vacations, sort of like the types of vacations that uh, ordinary people would have to pay for or, or you know, win on the Wheel of Fortune or, or another game show. Um, so in the case of Justice Thomas, we found that um, uh, this Dallas real estate billionaire named Harlan Crow, who's also a major donor to conservative causes, has been uh, essentially subsidizing Justice Thomas's life for more than 20 years, taking him on his private jet to vacations around the world to places like Greece and Indonesia. Um, we also found that Crow had actually paid the private school tuition for uh, Thomas's relative, who Thomas was raising as a child, as a son. 
Um, and our most recent story uh, was about Justice Alito taking a uh, luxury Alaska fishing vacation um, with a, a hedge fund billionaire named Paul Singer. Um, Paul Singer flew Justice Alito to this vacation back in uh, 2008 uh, on a private jet. Um, and uh, in that case, Paul Singer's hedge fund then had a series of cases at the Supreme Court, uh, business disputes with a, a whole lot of money at stake. And, uh, you know, no one knew about this relationship. No one knew about this gift. And Justice Alito did not recuse himself from, from these matters at the court. And in, in one of them, uh, one case that the court heard, um, Alito ruled in favor of, of Singer's hedge fund. Um, so uh, a set of a very unusual outside relationships. And another aspect of both of these stories is that um, Justices Thomas and Alito have not disclosed these gifts. Uh, one of the few ethical requirements for Supreme Court justices that's actually in the law is they have to disclose um, when they get large gifts like we've been writing about. And in these cases, none of this was disclosed Uh which is why we didn't know about it until until now. How did you learn about it? How did you set off on this uh, trail of reporting? It's a good question. My uh, reporting partner, uh, Josh Kaplan, and I uh, about six months ago um, were uh, thinking about uh, starting a project looking at the judiciary more broadly, not intending to look at the Supreme Court. And... Um, this actually all started when we uh, took a trip uh, to Harvard Law School to look at um, the archives of another justice, the late Justice Antonin Scalia. And uh, most of his papers are, are sealed to the public, but you can actually look at the photographs. And we found all of these photographs of Justice Scalia on these hunting and fishing trips. Uh, in some cases, we noticed with kind of uh, notable wealthy people, business people, political donors. Um, and as we started to kind of poke around on that, we learned about this uh, sort of similar travel by justices who are still alive and on the court. Um, before we get deeper into Thomas and Alito, I, let's, let's do the, uh, the, the what about uh, question, which is, I think I remember Justice Ginsburg and Breyer uh, taking similar trips uh, is there an equivalent going on here uh, with 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 the so-called liberal justices, or were they doing the same thing? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so, with uh, as far as we know, there there is not uh, an equivalent to this. Um, so, it's true that Justice Breyer, for example, who's you know now off the court, um, uh, did uh, you know. Essentially, all of the justices, including Justice Breyer, have taken a lot of trips that they don't pay for. Um, in the case of Justice Breyer, the reason we know about that, those trips, and, and these were usually for things like giving speeches or serving on, uh, you know, committees in a kind of professional capacity. But sometimes these um, speeches would be in very nice places like the south of France or something like that. And, and the Justice Breyer or other justices would get, a free, you know, a free trip to wherever they were speaking. Um, now, the reason we know about that is uh, Justice Breyer, for example, um, disclosed all these trips on his annual financial disclosure, which anyone can look up online and, and you can 
look at exactly where he went and, and who paid for it and, uh, you know, decide for yourself whether this is a good idea for him to take. I mean, a lot of people are critical of even those disclosed trips and say that the justices shouldn't be taking them at all. Um, what's different, for, for example, with Clarence Thomas is uh, he's been taking these trips and other uh, gifts such as private school tuition um, for more than 20 years and not disclosing them. And also um, the, the trips we wrote about that Harlan Crow took Clarence Thomas on were not instances where Justice Thomas was, uh, you know, going to speak on a panel about the Constitution. These were purely vacations. Like one of the trips we wrote about was Harlan Crow flew Thomas um, on his private jet to Indonesia where Harlan Crow's super yacht was waiting for them. And then they spent, uh, I think, 10 days um, island hopping in Indonesia, all paid for by Harlan Crow. So to us, that's a very, very different thing than a university or law school flying a justice even to a very nice place to give a speech about the law. Um, so that's kind of, you know, it's possible, by the way, that uh, Justice Ginsburg or Breyer or one of the other Democratic appointed justices was doing, uh, you know, something similar. We just haven't found out about it yet. Uh, if, that's, if that's the case, uh, we would very much like to hear about it, if anyone out there uh, has heard anything. Justin, there's another piece. There's two other pieces to the Clarence Thomas uh, saga, which is, number one, <clears throat> it, your reporting found that uh, Crow purchased and renovated uh, Thomas's mother's home. Is that right? Yeah, this is something we learned after we published our, our first story about all these travels. And what we we heard and then confirmed is that, um, you know, Harlan Crow entered into actually a real estate transaction with Justice Thomas. Um, Crow purchased uh, a set of properties down in Savannah, Georgia, where uh, Justice Thomas is originally from, um, that were in part owned by Justice Thomas, so he was actually paying him money in this real estate deal. Um, and one of these houses that Crow bought is actually where Justice Thomas's elderly mother currently lives. Um, Harlan Crow then uh, pumped a bunch of money into renovating this house, making it nicer, adding a carport. Um, and as we understand it, uh, it's this very unusual situation where, where Harlan Crow, this billionaire political donor, is now actually the landlord of a Supreme Court justice's mother, um, except that landlord might not be the right term because our understanding is that Crow is not actually charging her rent. She's living there rent-free. Um, so this is uh, an extremely unusual um, financial relationship between a Supreme Court justice and and a you know wealthy political donor, um, and Crow told us when we you know uh, asked him about this for our story that he had purchased this property because he wants to one day turn it into a museum, uh, a museum to um, to document the life of Clarence Thomas. Um, but there's still a lot of unanswered questions about that. Okay. I want to uh, stick with Clarence Thomas just for the moment and ask you about his wife, Ginny, uh, who was one of the uh, prominent figures calling for the nullification of the uh, 2020 election, uh, sending uh, texts to Trump 
Chief of Staff Mark Meadows urging him to stay strong and overturn the election. What did you find about any role by her in all of this? Yeah, so Jenny Thomas, we, you know, uh, accompanied uh, Clarence Thomas on, uh, you know, most, if not all of these luxury vacations that we wrote about. For example, she was on this trip to Indonesia on Harlan Crow's super yacht. Uh, we published pictures of that. Um, yeah, and as you said, I mean, she's a, a figure that sort of keeps popping up in uh, in stories about Justice Thomas. I mean, another important thing that's been going on at the Supreme Court is that Justice Thomas decided not to recuse himself, not to step away from uh, cases involving, um, you know, the attempts to, to overturn the 2020 presidential election, even though uh, Jenny Thomas, um, you know, was personally involved in that. And personally, uh, I believe in one case, actually, her text messages or emails were um, at issue in part in a case. And there was you know, widespread calls that Justice Thomas really should not sit on that, given his personal connection. Um, and one of the interesting things that we've learned uh, and have understand better now about the Supreme Court is, uh, for the most part, the justices uh, are left to police themselves and have, you know, nearly absolute power to sort of decide what they want to do in terms of their ethical, in terms of their conduct and decisions on ethics. And in that case, uh, Justice Thomas decided not to recuse himself. And there's not really anything anyone can do about that because it's entirely up to him. Okay. Uh, I think one of the, you know, most of us are used to hypocrisy in politics, but I think most of us of a certain age uh, grew up thinking that the Supreme Court was kind of uh, off, off limits to this kind of uh, hypocrisy and, and conflict of interest. And your stories are are telling us that they're they're just kind of like anybody else. I mean, uh, were you surprised to find what you uh, what you found, and what do the justices what did they say when offered the com the chance to comment on this? Yeah, we we were we have been quite surprised, and I think there's a couple reasons for that. One is, I mean, you know, to step back from all the kind of details of the gifts here, uh, one of the reasons this is so notable to us is, you know, you ha you have very, very rich people getting access, private access to, you know, the most powerful judges in the country uh, by paying for things like paying for trips for them, which is not something that any ordinary American or any any ordinary person who might have a case at the Supreme Court ever gets a chance to do. So um, that access is clearly something that's valuable. And we were surprised, you know, it's something that you expect to see with, you know, like a member of Congress and a lobbyist, uh, that it's much more common, but it seems to be also happening at the Supreme Court. Um, the other reason we're surprised is that, you know, we've been talking to other federal judges, you know, below the Supreme Court, and there's a lot of federal judges, and it's not at all a partisan thing, who uh, take the standards of judicial probity and ethical conduct incredibly seriously. We've talked to federal judges who say they won't even let a lawyer uh, buy them lunch if they go out to lunch with a lawyer friend, um, you know, re refusing any kind of even modest gift, let alone, you know, the kind of uh, vacations and uh, other things we've been writing about that could cost tens and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so, 
we have been surprised and uh, we're still trying to figure out, uh, you know, if, if this is something that's been going on Supreme Court for a long time or if it's a recent development. Um, in terms of what the justices have said to us, so Justice Thomas has said very little. He has issued one very brief statement in response to, to one of the stories we've done about him. And he just said that Harlan Crow is a dear friend. And, you know, as friends do, we my family has traveled with his family um, without sort of addressing all the questions about, well, um, why is Harlan Crow always, always paying for it? Uh, why did Harlan Crow you know, pay a hundred thousand dollars of private school tuition for you, for your relative that you were raising. Um, so he said very little, uh, justice Alito, um, you know, uh, engaged more in our story about him last week. He actually, um, before our story came out, published a column in the wall street journal editorial page that was kind of a pre um, saying that we, we had it wrong and his argument, was that, uh, you know, he, he barely knows Paul Singer, the, the billionaire that, um, flew him out on a private jet to this Alaska vacation. And therefore, uh, he did not have to recuse himself from Paul Singer's cases. And he also defended his decision not to disclose the gift of this private jet flight. And, you know, uh, I personally have never um, been in a private jet, but we've now spoken to a lot of um, uh, private jet companies. And I just want to emphasize how expensive these flights are. So this flight to Alaska, for example, from the East Coast, we were told that just going one way from the East Coast to Alaska on the type of private jet they were on could cost over $100,000. Um, so a seat on that jet is, is not a small thing. But uh, Justice Alito's position in this Wall Street Journal piece that he wrote about it is that, um, you know, he didn't have to disclose this. And if, if he didn't take the seat, it was going to go empty anyways. So uh, that's sort of where things stand now. So you took us to Alito. Uh, let's stay with him before we have to go on our next break. And, and so he took a this is back in 2008. Uh, he flies private at the at the uh, on the dime of billionaire Paul Singer. Uh, stays at a salmon fishing lodge uh, on Singer's dime, uh, and there's photographs of him posing as as all fisher people do with their catch. Uh, and he did not disclose any of that on a financial disclosure form. That's right. Yeah, and the lodge, uh, you know, cost um, more than a thousand dollars a day, and that was in. 2008 money. So <laughs> whatever yeah. that is now, it's something more. Um, and yeah, this was, you know, uh, a, a, a clearly very expensive and very nice uh, fishing trip. It was out to this little town village, really, on the Alaska Peninsula called King Salmon. And there's the pictures that we published. Toledo and Singer are holding these very, very large and nice looking uh, King Salmon that they caught. They were flown around on the lodge's bush planes. Um, you know, eating, uh, king, uh, king crab legs and, you know, fancy meals, sort of everything, everything paid for. Um, and yes, he did not, uh, did not disclose this gift, said that, um, he didn't have to because he considered it sort of just a personal hospitality. And in addition, uh, Singer then turns around and 
has his interests have a case before the court. In fact, uh, Alito is part of the majority that rules in favor of Singer's interests to the tune of multi-million dollar settlement against the country of Argentina. I mean, the story gets deeper and deeper. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the short version of this is Paul Singer's hedge fund, which is called Elliott Management, um, no relation to, to me, uh, same name, but no relation, um, the, the, uh, was in this 13-year intense legal battle with the nation of Argentina. Essentially, Singer's hedge fund had purchased Argentine government bonds at a deep discount and then was suing Argentina to try to get paid in full, and it was actually multiple billions of dollars, not millions. So a huge amount of money at stake. And um, this case, uh, you know, aspects of, of this fight went up to the Supreme Court multiple times. The Supreme Court ended up hearing one of the cases. And no one knew about this relationship uh, between Justice Alito and Paul Singer, the fact that Paul Singer had flown him on his private jet and uh no one. So there was no discussion about whether Alito should recuse himself and Alito did not recuse himself. He ruled with the majority in favor of Singer's hedge fund um, in the end, in part because of that litigation. Uh, Argentina, uh, which you know had a struggling economy and a lot of economic problems, ended up having to pay Singer's hedge fund more than two billion dollars um, uh, at the end of this fight. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that this gift disclosure law exists um, is exactly for situations like this, because the idea is, you know, if uh, as one of the ethics law experts we spoke to put it, if you were in a, a dispute with somebody in a courtroom, you're suing somebody over some money or commercial dispute, and you found out that the judge had been, uh, you know, flying around on the private jet of the person on the other side of the case, uh, you know, how would you feel about that? Um, and I think most people probably wouldn't feel great about having their case heard by that judge. And so they, part of the reason for the disclosure rules is that if you have this out in the open, then people involved in cases can, you know, it's out there uh, in the sunlight. People can raise the issue. They can ask the judge to recuse himself. There could be a, uh, a kind of public discussion around it. Um, so the fact that they're not disclosing these relationships and gifts um, sort of leads to cascading problems. Okay. Michael in Waitsfield, uh, you're on the air with Justin Elliott and me. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity. Sure. All, all judges are selected for one thing, their judgment, especially in the Supreme Court. Therefore, they're the type of people that uh, think about every, everything comes to a decision based on facts uh, on what they're going to think about, about about other people's lives and their own lives. These decisions that they did not ex- uh, ex- expose what's going on in their life is based on their judgment. They knew, they know every parameter. They have all of these expert uh, 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 people that work work with them. They they all of them have. Uh, other other judges from the best schools in the world that 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 they go over situations with, they made a decision not to tell us. It's not like you or I or we made a mistake. That's their job. They're professional judgment people. This is a very very big deal, and I'm glad you're keeping it up. But 
I don't want this. This is a news story that's just going to go away. It, it, it's it's not like saying that Thomas made a mistake. They do not make mistakes at the Supreme Court level. They're judges. They say they did and did not do things based on their judgment. That's what I want to say. Thank you, uh, Justin. Let's let's go to another. Uh, I'm just going to say that guy's name, Leonard Leo, uh, who has been an integral uh, advocate slash lobbyist in the uh, decades-long effort by uh, the Republican Party to kind of take over the Supreme Court. Can you tell us what your reporting found about him? Sure. So this is not a, a household name, uh, I think, at this point. But Leonard Leo is um, you know, pr- probably one of the most powerful unelected people in U.S. politics. So he is a longtime executive at the Federalist Society, which is a conservative lawyers group that's had a lot to do with the, um, you know, conservative uh, change in the law and the courts, and in particular at the Supreme Court level over the past 40 years. Um, Leo is a, is a major political fundraiser. He's, ma- he's raised, uh, you know, well over a billion dollars and spends that money on judicial confirmation fights and, you uh, you know, on political campaigns that are going to affect the courts in one way or another. Um, Leo uh, has popped up several times in our reporting. Um, he was actually uh, on this fishing vacation in Alaska with Justice Alito. Uh, we reported that Leo was the one that actually um, asked the billionaire with the private jet if if he, Leo, and Justice Alito could, could take seats on the private jet to go on this on this fishing vacation that was free for Justice Alito. Um, and Leo uh, was also on um, at least some of the travel uh, that Harlan Crow um, hosted uh, Justice Clarence Thomas on. Um, so he's somebody that uh, is wielding a lot of influence in, in shaping what the court looks like. He was um, he's perhaps most famous, actually, for um, uh, helping to draw up Donald Trump's list of judges that he was going to consider putting on the Supreme Court back in the 2016 election. Um, and uh, he lives down in, in D.C., but also spends a lot of time over in Maine. Um, he has a vacation home uh, in uh, near Acadia uh, National Park that's gotten a bunch of there's um, <laughs> there's now regularly protests outside this house uh, over in Maine. Um, so he's somebody that we're still trying to sort of fully understand his role, but he, he appears to be playing a, uh, some kind of role um, in at least some of these cases and in, in organizing these trips for justices. So, OK, and now there's before we get to the law around this and the the other intricacies, there's there's a role that John Roberts, the uh, chief justice of the court, plays here. And there's a. Uh, there's a, a piece of reporting about the role of Robert's wife and her job. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. So John Roberts' role as chief justice, he, um, you know, speaks for the court uh, at times, especially in relation to Congress. One of the things that's happened um, in response to our stories is this, various members of Congress including uh, on the Senate Judiciary Committee, have sent letters to the court asking John Roberts 
both to investigate these relationships we've been writing about between justices and political donors, um, and also asking John Roberts and the court as a whole to adopt uh, a basic code of conduct, which is something, interestingly, the Supreme Court does not have, unlike the rest of the federal courts, which have a code of conduct you can look up very easily. Supreme Court doesn't have a code of conduct. Um, uh, you know, it's almost, I think, unique in that way in, in the entire federal government. There's uh, very few binding ethics rules. Um, John Roberts so far uh, has not um, responded uh, to these stories in any kind of particularly substantive or new way. Um, the justices did release a statement about their ethics practices that uh, Roberts sent over to the Senate that kind of just outlined uh, the various laws that um, we sort of are already knew apply to them. Um, in terms of John Roberts' wife, this is not something that we reported, but um, there's been some stories about how she works as a uh, well-paid legal recruiter for law firms, and some people have raised questions about uh, whether there's any potential conflict there with her being paid by law firms that sometimes have business at the court. Um, and it's not something we've written about. I think ethics experts we've spoken to um, are somewhat divided on whether that's actually a problem. Um, you know, some people make the point that I think a uh, totally valid point that justices, you know, in this day and age, justices are going to have spouses that are going to work, not just, um, you know, be staying at home like maybe in the old days. And, you know, you don't want to make that uh an ethical violation because people are allowed to sort of have their own careers. But obviously, in some cases, like the case of, I think, Ginny Thomas, much more than John Roberts' wife, um, Ginny Thomas's work uh, has come up directly in cases that Justice Thomas has ruled on. And, and I think everyone we've talked to agrees that that is a very, very big problem. So Ginny Thomas uh, was sending private texts to the White House chief of staff during the January 6th insurrection to try to overturn the election in 2020. Uh, and her husband sat on cases involving the insurrection and did not recuse himself. Is that correct? That's my understanding. Yeah. And the cases, it was even more directly related. I believe one of the cases was, uh, involved, um, these, uh, communication records and and uh whether they were going to sort of come to light and some of the communications at issue were actually communications i can't remember if they were texts or emails from jenny thomas i believe urging uh state legislators state legislators in one or two states to uh change the results of of the of the of the 2020 presidential election and uh you know even though his spouse's records were directly at issue in one of these cases. He did not recuse himself and uh, never gave any kind of explanation for why he didn't recuse himself, which is another prerogative of Supreme Court justices. Uh, they decide whether to recuse themselves and um, they don't have to explain themselves, although that's something that some members of Congress now have proposed uh, changing in the law. Uh, I want to get to this point about disclosure and and the, the your colleagues in journalism, I covered federal courts as a young reporter down in Nashville, Tennessee in the mid eighties. And it never, never would have occurred to me to question the 
the ethics and private lives of uh, federal judges down there. And I, you know, what's, I guess my question to you is, why didn't Adam Liptak at the, at the uh, New York Times or Nina Totenberg at NPR or any of the other Supreme Court justices, uh, Supreme Court reporters, uh, do this journalism before you did? And I think I know the answer, which is, uh, you know, when you're, when you're at the court writing about the cases every day, you, it's like the old war reporters in Vietnam, you know, sometimes you get captured by the propaganda. Uh, is there, a, is there another explanation as to why this story was left to ProPublica and, and not the Times didn't get it or NPR or anybody else? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, the, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't fully know the answer. I, I think uh, there's a couple things going on. One is that, you know, as you said, the, the reporters that are on the Supreme Court beat, um, first of all, have their hands full, uh, you know, writing about the, the cases, which is a, a big job. Um, but then also there, there might be an aspect of this that involves, um, those reporters, uh, you know, have uh, it's in their interest to maintain access to the justices, to maintain, um, you know, friendly relations uh, with, you know, the Supreme Court press office, for example. Um, the way we've done most of these stories hasn't involved reporting um, at the Supreme Court in, in Washington, D.C. at all. We've been, you know, talking to fishing guides in Alaska and, and people that used to work on Harlan Crow's yacht. Um, and piecing it together that way. Now, in, in, in defense of the New York Times, um, actually, uh, maybe 15 years ago, there's a New York Times investigative reporter, not a Supreme Court reporter, who actually did write a very good story about uh, Clarence Thomas and Harlan Crow that kind of uh, began to get at, um, you know, a bunch of what we flushed out more fully more recently. So it, it hasn't been... Um, I think it's, uh, you know, the coverage has, has sort of been mixed. Um, but but also, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think there's just surprise that anything like this is even possible because most federal judges, and as far as we can tell, the federal judges we've been talking to, um, you know, take the ethical standards uh, incredibly seriously and would never dream of, of, of uh, having their lives subsidized by people, you know, who have interests in one way or another before the court. So, uh, it might just be that uh, people weren't didn't think this sort of thing was possible, and so weren't digging in this way. You know, I would point out that in Vermont, uh, the law is that if a legislator receives anything of value more than five dollars, it has to be disclosed. And this kind of stuff just doesn't go on here. Um, and I, I, it's it's worth for our audience pointing out. So there is a a code of conduct for the United States Supreme Court, but as far as law, the law around what they must and must disclose and don't have to disclose, is there a law? Um, there is actually. Uh, it's one of the few laws that um, applies to the Supreme Court. Uh, this was a law passed back in the 1970s after Watergate, and. Uh, it's called the Ethics in Government Act, and what it says is that Supreme Court justices, along with a lot of other government officials at a high level, have to file these annual forms that are public in which they disclose um, 
outside income uh, and a few other things, including gifts over like a few hundred dollars. Most gifts over a few hundred dollars have to be disclosed. This is one of the few um, laws that applies to to the Supreme Court. Um, Unlike many, many other people in the federal government, there's there's not really many rules around what gifts they can accept. Like I have friends who are just ordinary workers at federal agencies who say that, you know, they can't even take like a a T-shirt when they go to a a work conference. The rules are so strict about what gifts they can accept. Right. Um, Supreme Court justices can accept almost anything. And the one thing the law asks of them is, is to disclose it so it could be out, you know, out in the sunlight. Um, and that's what they that's the law that they have not been following, um, at least in the cases of uh, Justice Thomas and Alito. Um, and I guess the only other, the other interesting thing about that is um, Chief Justice uh, Roberts has actually sort of suggested in public that maybe this law isn't even constitutional uh, and maybe Congress doesn't have the power to uh, to actually impose rules on the Supreme Court. Um, that, that argument has not been fleshed out. It's something that he's sort of, sort of suggested. Um, but nevertheless, they do file these forms every year, even though they uh, seem to be often omitting the gifts they're getting. Okay. Justin Elliott, uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, your reporting has, uh, has uh, pulled the curtain back on something we didn't know about, and uh, that's the job of ProPublica. You can find Justin Elliott's work at ProPublica.org, um, and uh, there's, there's lots more uh, beyond what we've discussed today. Justin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, and I would just say if anyone out there has heard anything we should know, please get in touch. My email is at the bottom of all our stories. We're back. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Well, that was an interesting 45 minutes. So it turns out that justices of the United States Supreme Court are accepting free trips on yachts, salmon fishing vacations, private jets. Uh, The billionaires are buying Clarence Thomas's mother's house and paying the private school tuition of his uh, grandnephew, which he is raising, whom he is raising as a son. And all of this, uh, we didn't know before April when ProPublica started writing these stories. There is a law that requires disclosure, but these justices say that they don't have to disclose because these are, these billionaires are their friends. And this is mere hospitality. Uh, I think, you know, I think the United States Supreme Court for decades has, has been sort of off limits to this kind of uh, activity. And in the minds of we uh, citizens has been off limits uh, in our minds. Uh, I know in my days as a reporter, we sort of thought of the Supreme Court as off limits, that there was always chicanery going on in Congress uh, but that the Supreme Court was somehow above it all, and it turns out they're not. And uh, ProPublica's really pulled back the curtain. It's fascinating. And uh, and the justices, in fairness, defend the behavior. Uh, they say they don't have to disclose. So I don't think we've heard the last of this story, and we'll stay with it. Why don't we go to the phones? Fred, you've been waiting uh, for a long time. What have you to say about the United States Supreme Court? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. 
the United States Supreme Court's got a problem because Congress wants to pass the buck to the United States Supreme Court. And Congress also passed the War Powers Act. I'm 80. The Congress of the United States has only declared war once in my lifetime. And we had the Vietnam War, the Korean War, the first Gulf War, the second Gulf War, the uh, Afghani War. Where was Congress? Oh, they were funding the war, but they didn't declare war. Congress are losers. When it becomes to a tough political thing, they pass the buck to the Supreme Court. So how are we going to fix the Supreme Court? Every odd year, like 13, 15, whatever, we could elect a third of the Supreme Court. Since they're politicians now, so why don't we elect them? We can elect a third. Well, there you go. What do you say, Kevin? There you go. Thank you for the call. Um, Electing... A third of the Supreme Court. Interesting proposal. I have no doubt that the framers of the Constitution considered that. And uh, Fred Fred raises an interesting point, which I was going to make earlier, which is it just seems to me that a lot of the systems that were created in 1783 by the framers seem to be showing their age a bit. Uh, our society has become so fast, so technological that, uh, that, that, uh, institutions that were created, uh, 250 years ago, Congress, the Supreme Court, uh, even the press have some trouble kind of keeping pace with the change that's gone into the society. I wonder if this ProPublica series about the Supreme Court doesn't doesn't shed some light on this. Uh, it's, it, it sure looks like that the disclosure obligations and ethics guidelines that govern what Supreme Court justices do and don't do is, um, have just not kept up. Now, I know that Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, <clears throat> from Rhode Island, has proposed a whole new set of uh, ethics guidelines for the Supreme Court. Uh, our senator in Vermont, Peter Welch, is now on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and our Congresswoman Becca Ballant, uh, who is uh, is also now on the House Judiciary Committee, and I, I have invited both of them on the show to talk about this, uh, and we will we'll be talking to them very soon about their views on. How do we get a handle on the private behavior of uh, Supreme Court justices that could uh, – where where the wealthy can buy influence with the Supreme Court justice uh, for cases that are in front of the court? I mean that Alito situation is especially graphic in which Alito took the sa- private jet to the salmon fishing resort out west and then – sits on a case involving the guy who paid the bill and then rules in his favor. Now, that's that's going to demand more uh, scrutiny. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's, DEV, it's uh, Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're going to be right back, and we're going to talk about solar energy with the folks at Green Mountain Solar. We 
are back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on the friendly pioneer WDEV, and uh, I've got some questions. And we have a special guest who's going to answer those questions. But let me begin uh, before I introduce, well, let's introduce him. Shannon Jackson from Green Mountain Solar, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Kevin. It's great to be back. Okay. So you're talking to a guy whose power went out at Christmas for five days in East Montpelier, uh, who is out of town from time to time during the winter. So we're about to invest in a generator. Uh, it, it, there are, uh, and you've got a, you've got a, a, an affordable heat act that just passed the Vermont legislature that's encouraging everybody to you, to, to switch over from their oil furnaces and gas furnaces to heat pumps. And yet, when you talk to the heat pump guy, he says, well, these things aren't very good below, say, five, five below. You better have a backup source of, of heat. Uh, if I were a consumer out there, uh, I'd be confused. So you're the expert on solar. Uh, what, what are we, what are we to think? Tell us about where Green Mountain Solar and solar energy in general fits into this crazy equation during a time when we are moving an entire economy away from fossil fuels and towards renewables. How about that? That's a word salad for you. That's perfect. I appreciate the, the tee-up. Sure. Uh, I'm glad to jump right in. I, too, had an outage over the holidays with eight of my relatives sitting in my living room over Christmas Eve, so it was yeah. less than ideal. Um, I definitely got the look from my wife that, Jenna, I know we went solar. We should have gotten the batteries as well. Um, had we had batteries, we would have been the place to be and had that resilient, reliable electricity that um, so many Vermonters were without because of the grid outage during that pretty intense storm that unfortunately are becoming more um, prevalent and popular. Um, batteries are great. Um, the batteries that we primarily install are the Tesla Powerwall batteries. Um, you can get multiple of them depending on how much of an outage you want to have backup for or how much of a usage you have on a regular basis. Um, you talked, you touched on a lot of things in that lead up. Um, so I'll first touch on the batteries and then we can talk about heat pumps separately. But so just, just, so just for the uninitiated, uninitiated, and you're also talking to a guy who lived off the grid with batteries and, uh, solar panels back in the old days down in Orange County back in the uh, early nineties. You, you have solar panels on your roof or in your field. They generate electricity, and that electricity then charges batteries that sit in your basement. And even if the sun's not shining, those batteries are powering your house. Go ahead. That's correct. And so I think that's, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking to people who are considering some sort of backup system, whether that's a generator or a battery, the thing I like to highlight is that a battery will provide you when it's tied into a solar system with, you know, kind of indefinite amount of time um, of a system that will work. You won't have to refuel because it will be refueled every time the sun comes up and those solar system, solar panels start charging the battery. Um, unlike a generator where you'll have to have maintenance costs every week, it will have to run even though you don't have outages. And when you have an outage, it has a very defined amount of time it can work and provide you with power. Um, 
before you need to have it refueled. And uh, obviously, if we have a blizzard or we have trees down and different things, that might not be a possibility. Batteries, on the other hand, you know, with them being tied into this very independently uh, set up system, they'll have enough power in there to last you a day or two. Um, ideally, after that, the, your panels can start re uh, supplying the battery with power. And then you can kind of go with that using the solar power during the day directly from the panels as they both feed the house and charge the battery. In the evenings, the batteries take over, fill your, uh, completely fill your house with your electrical needs. Um, and then during the, the following day, the batteries start over again. So there's really no set time that you wouldn't be without power if you had it set up with a small battery system and a solar system as well. And how does a uh, solar system with batteries uh, stack up in terms of cost next to next to a generator, for example? Sure. So with any situation where you're looking at your energy uses in your house, the renewable side is going to have a little bit more upfront. But if you look at the, the long-term timeline and payback, it will far outperform that of a alternative uh, generator or other thing like that. So... The batteries themselves and the um, solar system will be, a, you know, an initial pr- process. But over the course of six to eight years, you will have paid the same amount in your electrical um, cost as you would have uh, for solar, as if you didn't go solar. So, six to eight years, the solar system will have, you know, be on par with what you would have invested. And then, you know, a solar system usually has a return on investment within. 12 to 14 years, depending on your solar access and how large of a system you install. So a generator will provide you peace of mind. It will provide you with reliable power, but you can't ever say the generator is going to pay for itself over time. Um, The solar system will, um, and the batteries will take that solar system and make it perform at an even higher level of uh, performance than you would expect. And what do you specialize in at Green Mountain Solar? Are, are you, do you do field mounted, uh, rack mounted, uh, panels? Do you put them on roofs? Uh, what's, what's your general approach? So we're kind of a one stop shop for your solar needs. Great. We do, you know, a lot of our work is residential. We do both roof mounted and ground mounted arrays. Uh, we also do a large number of commercial arrays. We have a large number of projects throughout the state from bakeries to the Gordini Glove Factory that we're proud to have done their solar arrays. So we do pretty large systems there as well. We also do batteries. Um, I mentioned the Tesla batteries we sell. We've also started selling LG batteries as well as an alternative to Tesla. And then we uh, do basic heat pumps, so single-zone air-to-air heat pumps for people that are looking to supplement their heating and cooling um, needs. So I wonder if you can answer that question, which is everyone's being told they've got to switch to heat pumps. The state uh, is going to help you do that with uh, subsidies. Where does solar and Green Mountain Solar fit in with heat pumps? Do you do the heat pump first and get solar, or do you get solar first and then the heat pump? What, what should the average homeowner be thinking about? So quite honestly, a lot of the reason we actually provide basic heat pumps, we don't do all heat pump projects. If you're trying to retrofit your entire house and do, you know, multi-zones, different things, that's something that we would actually refer to you, one of our other friends in the industry and that are specialized in heat pumps. Um, but that being said, when we meet with somebody to talk about a solar system, 
a great way for someone to think about how they can take some of their alternative fuel costs, whether that's with oil or propane or natural gas, and take that and do it in a much more renewable approach is through looking at going with a heat pump system. So probably a nine out of the 10 site visits I have, we bring up heat pumps to talk as an option either in the present with doing it at the same time as a solar system or down the road planning for a possible expansion, you know, when, you know, it's more economical and better for them to fit it into their budget. As you hinted at, there's a ton of, not a ton, but a good amount of incentives, both locally and federally, for heat pumps right now. There's a federal heat pump incentive that passed in that Inflation Reduction Act last year, so it's in place for the next 10 years, and that's 30% of the total heat pump projects up to $2,000. Or um, And so for, with that, a lot of people are thinking that they'll do a heat pump this year and get the maximum they can on that 30% up to $2,000 and maybe let another heat pump next year and then kind of use that to its maximum ability. There's also Efficiency Vermont has a $350 rebate for every heat pump someone installs. And then on top of that, a lot of their utilities from Burlington to GMP to um, Vermont Electric Co-op have separate incentives to help people further afford those heat pump projects. So, you have a lot of entities all coming together to try to make this a very affordable and encouraged project for people to control their heat in a different source. What is the Vermont's renewable energy standard, and uh, what's going on in the legislature with regard to changing it? Absolutely. That's a great question. It's something that our our organization, as well as a whole team of 350 and Rights and Democracy and a whole conglomerate of all the VPIRG and um, the Sierra Club and everyone's come together to really fight for this higher standard. The present renewable energy standard says sets a pretty low bar for where Vermont um, should be getting its energy sources from. It also has a big reliance on using renewable energy credits that have already been uh, used in the past uh, and basically paying these companies that have already funded themselves and basically said, hey, you know, in 1980, we went and used wind power back then. And so, therefore, we have these archaic credits that we could say to you. And we, and so then if Vermont pays them to get those credits, therefore, they're being able to offset their renewable energy standards. So it's there's games that are being played that are not necessarily true and helping us in the moment, as well as we're relying a lot on not necessarily fully renewable energy systems, such as natural gas or getting hydropower from Hydro-Quebec out of state and not using in-state renewable um, credits and uh, that we need to. So this bill, H320, that all these organizations come around and worked with Joe Kruinski as well as a number of members in the House, um, is set to really strengthen and align our standards with our morals in the state and the really make it so that we're getting 100% of our renewable energy in the coming decades. Okay, understood. Now, what's the best way for a customer who's interested in solar and, and energy security? How do they, what's the first step they take? So the first step would be to call us for a no-pressure in-person site assessment so that we can see what's possible at your home uh, or your business for a solution, and whether that's 
putting a solar system on your house or putting one in the ground or providing with resources to look into community solar projects. Um, it starts with just a investigation into an inquiry about how best we could go solar at your home. And I noticed that uh, a lot of companies, this happened with my car when they uh, when they wanted to install a charger at my home, a lot of them are doing remote uh, estimates and, and quotes. I assume you don't recommend that. So that's something that I think sets us apart in that we, the first interaction you're going to have with us, obviously after you either fill out the form online or call our office and set something up, is an in-person meeting. Um, and while I think there's a lot of benefits to using software and tools to, you know, put together and design a system, the Google imaging and the other images that you have online are dated, you know, by a couple years usually. Uh, I know I just redid my driveway in my house, and it hasn't been updated in the past two years um, on the Google imaging, so I'm looking forward to actually seeing my hard work put (laughs) to uh, reality. Um, But with that in mind, you know, people take down trees. Trees grow. Um, Things can change in a whole variety of ways. And so getting on site to actually meet with the homeowner to understand the the true intent of the project as well as have that person-to-person, face-to-face interaction, I think really makes it so it's a much more uh, enjoyable experience as well as we're not having to um, move at a slower pace. We can actually, once we've met, we have seen the site, we understand the electrical system and the setup and how we do the full project. We can hit the ground running once we send you that proposal um, up to 48 hours afterwards and make sure that it's you know really tailored to your needs. Excuse me. <laughs> I wonder. Sorry for the cough. Um, oh, it's okay. The uh, when I had the five day power outage at Christmas, uh, the one big issue was the water pump. Uh, we we have our backup wood stove. That was fine. We went and got water from our neighbor. If we had to, we could get out get it out of the stream. Uh, you know, you've, you've got candlelight, you've got lanterns, whatever. The big issue is water coming out of your tap because your water pump is driven by electricity. Uh, a solar system with batteries would keep your water pump running, correct? That's correct. Right. And a lot of times when I size someone for a battery backup system, we start with a critical loads system. So you'd have you know, everyone's panel has their dishwasher, has their washer and dryer, has, you know, maybe a jacuzzi, you know, some things that are more luxurious goods that you don't necessarily need to have running during an outage. But then there's the, the fridge, the freezer, the, the basic lighting, the Wi-Fi router, um, obviously your water pump, septic pump, things of that intent um, that are really essential needs. So we'll start with doing a critical loads essential only backup system, which is usually just one or two Tesla power walls. You could have a very a smaller size solar system and then obviously grow it down the road if you wanted to get more backup for more of your house goods or for a longer period of time. But for your instance, if you had had a single Tesla power wall, we could have run that power, uh, that uh, the power required by that uh, water pump. You bring up a really good question, a uh, really good issue, which is the modular nature of solar, which is, you can buy five solar, six solar panels today, and then two years from now, when you've got the cash, you can you can buy more. You can keep adding to the system. Is that right? 
That's correct. You yeah. can add to both the solar cells themselves on the roof, as well as you can add to the battery system um, in a heated space in your home. And that's something that I personally am doing. You know, we, my wife and I put 32 panels in our house, and it's you know, good, but we're planning on getting electric vehicles um, in a few years. So I'm anticipating that our usage will go up, and therefore we'll need to get more solar panels um, to accommodate that increased usage. And so something that I like on our end that we do is when we meet with people in person, we talk about their expected increases in electrical usage. And we can, when we install the initial phase of the project, we can put a larger wire, a larger conduit in there, set everything up so that in the future, when they want to expand, you don't have to redo the whole system. You can just basically plug and play those additional modules into the system and make it work at that point in time. 32 panels. In my day, we had six 60-watt panels from a company called SolarX in Maryland, long out of business. Uh, but, uh, boy, it, it, that's a really good example of how the efficiency of the uh, and technology of these panels has really, really increased, and the cost has gone down over the years. Uh, yes, it has. Uh, we're actually, it's been nice. In the past couple months, I've had the pleasure of being able to reach out to past customers who were thinking about solar but may have put it off because of the economics and actually been able to update their proposals with reflecting that cost that has gone down. So it's I always enjoy those calls much more than uh, the other side of the coin when we've seen over COVID with, you know, a lot of the situations that happened with prices increasing. Um, it's been nice over the past couple of months to let people know that the cost of solar has come down recently. Okay, uh, here's a trick question. A lot of us in central Vermont are on Washington Electric uh, Co-op, and I know mm-hmm. there's been an issue with uh, solar and them saying that those customers, let me see if I get this right, those customers who do not have solar are subsidizing the cost of those who do have solar on the Washington Electric system and they're looking for some sort of relief from that burden. Does that make sense? So I see what they're saying, and I heard that just the other day from a customer. Um, in some regards, I understand that what they're arguing has some validity to it in that solar power is working to feed a house primarily and then using the lines and the infrastructure to send the electricity back to the grid. But that's also something they should consider in that um, solar power is enabling it so that Washington Electric or other electric companies don't have to produce as much, especially during peak times during the day when in the summer you had a lot of people using ACs and um, that t- draws a lot of electricity. And so with the solar power being produced right at that moment, it enables the load and the, ideally the, uh, the strain on the infrastructure not to be not as much. So it's, you know, I understand what they're saying and there's also, that's Part of the reason why we have seen the Public Utility Commission lower the um, net metering rates in right. the state. Right. Um, and so I think they are trying to find that balance. At the same point, you know, Washington Electric Co-op is the only electrical, electrical utility in the state that has a fee uh, for people that go solar, $4, about $4 a month on your monthly bill to try to make up, you know, what they see as that being um, unfair. So, I understand their argument. I understand why they're doing what they're doing to continue to charge people um, for having gone solar as kind of a 
um, an additional fee that you wouldn't see otherwise to your electric bill. So I think they're finding what works for them, and I appreciate that other electrical companies are not necessarily doing that same tactic and making it so that they're encouraging people to go solar. Shannon, where can people find uh, Green Mountain Solar in in order to start the process? Uh, please visit us on the web at www.greenmtnsolar.com or feel free to stop our office over in South Burlington right down the airport. Okay. Shannon Jackson, Green Mountain Solar, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks, Kevin. It's been okay. A Take care. Shannon Jackson, Green Mountain Solar. Boy, I'll tell you, as we move into an electric economy, uh, there's a lot of decisions to make. You know, you're going to put a charger for your electric car in your in your basement or your garage. You're going to get a heat pump. You might want to get a, a gosh, have I got this right? A convection oven and get rid of your get rid of your uh, gas stove. I can hear our listeners saying over my dead body. Um, you're thinking about solar. You're thinking about a generator. You're thinking about batteries. Now, three days of no sun, and even those batteries are going to run down. So, you know, the ideal, I guess the ideal would be solar with batteries with a backup generator that charges the batteries when you've got no sun for three days. And uh, it's, a, it's a conundrum. But, uh, but the, the cost will come down. Uh, of both the electric car, I, I think, uh, but the cost on solar panels will certainly keep coming down. And I keep looking at it uh, for my house. I keep looking at solar uh, over and over again, and uh, we'll see where it goes. Next up, WDEV friend Brian Pfeiffer and his experience in the bogs of Vermont's Northeast Kingdom. I'm Kevin Ellis. And this is Vermont Viewpoint on the Friendly Pioneer, WDEV. We are back. I'm Kevin Ellis. And this is Vermont Viewpoint on the Friendly Pioneer, WDEV. If you opened your Boston Globe, either via paper or online Tuesday, you would have seen on the front page a big color photo accompanied by a story about an old friend of WDEV of Vermont and all things the natural world. Montpelier's own Brian Pfeiffer was in the photo, butterfly net in hand in a bog somewhere in the Northeast Kingdom. Brian is a writer, journalist, field biologist, recovering bird watcher, and lots of other things. And he is here with us on the show. Welcome. Good morning, Kelvin. Nice to be here. I I, I was uh, I was disciplined by uh, senior management because uh, I was told earlier this morning that we don't need the Boston Globe to tell us at DEV how great Brian Pfeiffer is. <laughs> well, you know, I was on the front page with um, Vladimir Putin. You know, he got he was he was higher above the fold than I was, <laughs> but I, but I had a big bigger picture than he did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, here we go. Uh this is really a great story. Tell us, let's jump right in. Tell us about the bog elfin butterfly. Well, 
it's one of the most, you know, sort of difficult butterflies to find on the continent. It's imperiled wherever you find it, which is a really a limited range from basically Ontario out towards Nova Scotia and then a few north, north, northern New England states, and that's it. And for, for as long as we had known, Vermont was not one of those states. We suspected it was here. It is a obscure little brown butterfly about the size of a penny. And not only is it just small and hard to find, but it's in some what some people consider inhospitable places, bogs, remote, northern, wet, squishy, you know, uh, biting insect infested places. And bog elfin is, you know, just it's difficult to find because of where it lives, it, but mostly because it spends most of its time up in the boughs of black spruce trees in these bogs, just sitting there while you're sort of thrashing around below looking for it. And it's sort of up there laughing at you, really, sort of sending down its legions of biting black flies to attack you uh, <laughs> while you're in the bog. And um, it's only on the wing for about two weeks in any given year, from roughly mid-May to early June. So you have a, a really limited window during which to find it. Uh, and it's just, you know, even even in the bogs where it is flying, it's really hard to find. You know, you could, I've probably visited... Uh, many bogs in Vermont where it is living and not seen it. And I've been looking for it, Kevin, since 2002. Wow. Where I've been looking for 21 years and hadn't found it. We suspected it was in Vermont, um, but it had never been seen in this state. There's like one record for it in New, in New York. It's probably gone from New York now. Very few records of it in New Hampshire. It's a little bit more common in Maine and then out towards the um, and in the Canadian nearby Canadian provinces, but still, even where it's abundant, you know, it's rarely seen. Tell us, tell us about the search itself. Uh, you've said you've been doing this for 21 years. Uh, what? How did you go about looking for the bog elfin? Yeah, basically, it goes like this. You know, you find a bog, and you know, there's various. We know where Vermont's spruce bogs are and basically bog elfins lay their eggs on black spruce trees and that's it nowhere else and black spruce in vermont is pretty much a bog species uh it's up higher at higher elevation as well but it grows in really nutrient poor acidic bogs uh and so you get yourself to a bog well in vermont that's not always easy you most bogs you can't drive to you know, so you get near a bog, usually uh, on a dirt road, on a logging road, and, you know, you park the truck, you gear up, and you start bushwhacking. And so that's what I've been doing for 21 years, really. And so you just bushwhack to a bog, and then you get to the bog. And it's really, really, for me, like bogs are places where I think I belong. I really love bogs. They've got an unusual suite of birds. There's orchids flowering there. They're just really, to me, uh, serene and welcoming places. And then you start looking. So, like, it's never easy to get. It's, well, sometimes it's easy to get to a bog, but not always. And oftentimes when you're like me and, you, you know, you have this arthritic knee that actually did get fixed last fall, 
and you're getting bit by mosquitoes and black flies, and sometimes you say to yourself, you know, I'm really getting too old for this stuff. <laughs> um, but, but when you get to the bog, everything just sort of goes right for you, at least for me. Well, uh, I go to we go to Chickering Bog in East Montpelier, which is probably yeah probably uh, you know way beneath your standards, but uh, we do get to to live a little bit the way you do. Absolutely, I was at Chickering Bog two weeks ago. Yeah, where I saw a rare dragonfly that, as it turns out, I discovered this dragonfly about twenty years ago for the first time in Vermont. So no, like if you, there are wonderful preserved bogs with boardwalks on them, you know, where you can really get a sense of these places and learn about them because they're really, they are, they're unusual places in the same way that many Vermonters who go might climb Mount Mansfield or Camel's Hump where there are these alpine zones, you know, these treeless open areas. Um, We can experience these places that are much more common from farther north. And that's true of some of these preserved bogs like Chickering that you can visit, which is a fen, which is similar to a bog, but it's got a little bit more nutrients in the water. Oh, yeah, that's right. There's a sign there that says this is a fen, not a bog. Right, right, right. right. So the, those are minor details. Like, get yourself to one of these places and yeah. enjoy them. Yeah, I, I'm. my new thing is that uh, I think every doctor – uh, the first thing they should prescribe is a walk, uh, in the woods or on a trail or, uh, or a visit to a bog. That's a lot better than pharmaceuticals. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay. Back to the bog elephant. What, what is special about it and what drove you on this 21 year journey? Yeah. Well, you know, let's be honest. This is a little brown butterfly the size of a penny that no one will ever see or very few of us will ever see. I mean, for a while, I was the only person to see it in Vermont. And then I, I, I a few days after discovering that it at, at one particular bog, I went back with a friend and colleague. Uh, and so now there are only two of us who've seen it in Vermont. And most people will never see bog elf. Um, why is it special? You know, I think it's special because it belongs in these bogs. And Vermont, now that we know it's here, joins very few states and very few Canadian provinces that has, the, you know, that have this animal that isn't found nowhere else in the world. And it is, is you know, it's, it's sort of like, I don't know, like you can maybe, maybe take someone who doesn't know baseball, right? Right. And, you know, like you, you might never visit Fenway, right? But you, you know that, Fenway Park with the green monster. I mean, Fenway Park without the green monster would still be like the best ballpark in the world, right? But it's better with the green monster. And even if you never get there, you know, you you kind of know that certain places, like Paris without the Eiffel Tower would still be a great city, but it wouldn't be the same city. Right. And, and so, like, our bogs are still going to be – bogs without bog elephants but bog elephants make them better and for those of us who know these places and care about really our responsibility you know our duty to protect them all all everything that's there uh, i think bog elephant is a great symbol of, of that it's not necessarily about a little brown butterfly it's about us as well you know like our moral obligations to protect imperiled species and you uh 
record you took photographs of the the bog elephant and then and then released it uh so that we as Vermonters have some sort of record that this thing exists and we can see it in a book thanks to you right yeah exactly you know like the thing is like most of my searching over the past 22 years you know like so it's 21 years of not finding it and then finding it finally this year um has been alone I've been alone in these bogs, and normally all you really want to document something that's never been seen before in Vermont is some incontrovertible evidence. And for me, like when I first saw it, it landed on a black, uh, like a waist-high black spruce about 20 feet away from me, and I'm like, huh, you know, I've been looking for you <laughs> for a long time. And then it flew away <laughs> uh, without my getting a photo. I reached for my camera, and then it flew away. Yeah. And so, you know, and I kind of chased it a little bit and never caught up to it, of course. And then I started looking some more, and I saw another one in flight. And you got to know, there are a lot of little brown things flying above. And so, you know, like I'm, I've been at this a while. I'm 65 now. I do like to think that age and experience count for something. Right. And so, like, I saw this thing flying and I said, oh, there's my butterfly. And um, so uh, the second one, I I swung my net gently and caught this thing and put it in a little vial, took its picture and then let it go. So that was the evidence that we needed, you know. And then later I got I got better pictures of them posing while nectaring on flowers. You talked about after discovering the bog elfin butterfly somewhere in the northeast kingdom but you're not going to tell us where correct yeah it's actually in northern vermont is all we're sort of saying for the time being we can say it is on state land it's protected land right and many bogs are on protected land so that's a great head start in terms of preservation yeah but we also you also kind of have an obligation to kind of protect the area and you know we don't want hordes of people driving up from Boston to try to go find the elfin bog. Right, but not you know I'm not sure that'll be you know even if hordes of people came well a they trample the bog which is not good. Right. But even if they did come, you know, you know there are uh, there are bigger threats than people chasing after a little brown butterfly that's going to elude. I mean, look at it. It took me 20 years to find one. Right. Right. So um, I don't know that people are a direct proximate threat to this butterfly, but you know, the human footprint certainly is. And what we've been doing to the planet and how we threaten places and living things in general, you know, that's probably more, there's more of a generalized threat. The best way to destroy a little brown butterfly is to threaten the place that it lives. And and you, so long career as a naturalist, bird watcher. Uh, you were a uh, reporter at the Times Argus uh, Rutland Herald Capitol Bureau. You've seen the politics of of environmentalism, and you live it on a daily basis. What are we doing to the planet, and how big is the threat? Well, you know, I mean, it's clear that, you know, we are, we kill things on the planet. I mean, that's the way we roll. That's the way we live. That's how we live. We do it every time we turn on a light switch or eat food. 
Um, and so, you know, that's not to say that we shall stop turning on the lights or eating food, but it's just something that we need to recognize. And we destroy things. And it's just how we are on the planet now. And, you know, I think that a little brown butterfly like this does pose one of these moral challenges to us. Like, can we step back a bit and protect something that's vulnerable in a vulnerable place? And, you know, like I live like you, Kevin, you know, like journalists live. We When we write and talk and broadcast, we live in fear of people not giving a damn. You know, it's yeah. like uh, that's what I as a writer, I lose sleep at night about that people don't care. And, you know, like maybe people don't care about a little brown butterfly. But um, take, for example, the First Amendment to use journalism as a as an as an analogy here. It's like we protect speech that we don't necessarily care for or agree with or might lack obvious intrinsic value. It's like a foundational doctrine for us. It makes us stronger, right? It makes us more open to ideas. And and I don't think, I think that wildlife is no different, you know, like protecting the vulnerable and not necessarily the glittery and the glitzy and the profitable and the popular, you know, protecting the vulnerable makes us stronger. You know, it says that, hey, you know, maybe we can, in fact, step back a little bit from what we do as human beings. And, and again, I think it says more about, it, it says a lot about the, what we protect, but it also says a lot about us. Yeah. You, you wrestle with a lot of these issues in your newsletter called Chasing Nature, which can be found on Substack. If you just Google Brian Pfeiffer Substack, uh, you'll probably get it. And I urge you all to subscribe. What made you start this newsletter and 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 sort of reckon with a lot of these issues you know maybe i don't know i mean maybe i'm like you in a way i mean you know like we were we, we were journalists we were print journalists and we yeah. like to think that we're still relevant <laughs> um <laughs> and you know i don't know i suppose it's like anything else though like whether you're going you know whether you go to thunder road or whether you hike the long trail, you know, or whether you go out to eat at your local diner, like you have things that you love and things that you're passionate about. And for those of us who are lucky enough to be able to write or speak or broadcast, you know, and, and who are lucky enough to have outlets for that, um, I want to keep doing it. I think that um, I used to write about the things themselves, I used to write about birds and butterflies and plants, but now I'm writing essays. You know, I'm really writing about birds, butterflies, and plants and what what they really mean when it comes to the human condition, right? You know, sort of yeah. like how we all get along. And I don't know, I think that's that's still important, how we all get along. I mean, that's what that's what you're doing. You know, that's it's, what we're it's, doing on the air right now. You know, it's so interesting. I once wrote a blog post. Uh, I have to start calling my blog a newsletter like you, I guess. Uh, and the title was, What If No One Cares? And yeah. I, I think yeah. you, I think you're on to something. You know, if we, you know, I was, I was out to dinner last night with friends and, you know, you know, what we started talking about is Robert Kennedy Jr. And we went around yeah. the table and, and there were four totally different opinions 
about this guy and you just, you just felt better having engaged in a conversation that was sometimes difficult, sometimes fun. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I, you're, it's, you're, you're issuing a call to engagement, I think. And that's, what else do we have if we don't have our ideas and engagement? Right. You know, and, and engagement in an intelligent, civil way. So, yeah, uh, you know, it's sort of like, you know, there was this movie. What was that movie? Oh, I don't know. I'd have to give away the ending. But that's um, okay. That movie called Don't Don't Look Up, which I didn't particularly like. It was basically about an asteroid that was going to hit the Earth, right? right? And like the the way the movie ended, you could not listen if you don't want it. But it's like this so is the main character. They all sat around a dinner table. They were all having dinner together, talking, you know, exchanging ideas uh, just as the just before the asteroid hit. And like that's how I'd want to go. Well, I don't know. I'd probably want to be in a bog. There you go. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. So that's that's why we're doing this. Okay. And that's why I do it about little butterflies that nobody's ever heard of. Brian Pfeiffer, friend of WDEV, author of the Substack newsletter Chasing Nature and the discoverer of the bog elfin butterfly. Uh, just Google his name. You can read all about it. Brian, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Brian Pfeiffer. Uh, friend of WDEV, and I gotta say, treasure, uh, to the state of Vermont. You know, there are people who are just state treasures, and, uh, he's one of them. That is our show for today. Gosh, that was fun. Talking to Brian Pfeiffer, you just feel cleaner and better, uh, and smarter after you talk to him. Uh, if you want to be a guest on the show or send us a suggestion for a topic, drop me a line. You can find us, find me at kevinkellis.com. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. Read us, read Pfeiffer and me. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow me. My podcast, Conflict of Interest, examines the issues we deal with on the show. I'll be back Friday where, for the first time, we're going to discuss the war in Ukraine and Russia and what it means uh, with an expert in nuclear weapons and geopolitics. As always, we'll talk politics in Vermont and the nation. Uh, the groundhogs and skunks are gone from my garden. Uh, it's wet as all get out out there. And, boy, easy to pull weeds. Uh, and uh, we're in there eating eating up a storm. Our show is uh, directed, produced, engineered, managed. I guess he's not the director and the and the producer, but I've been giving him credit for a long time. Uh, I guess I'm sort of the producer, but uh, so I guess I'm the producer. But Danny McGivrigan's at the soundboard making it all possible. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here next time. That'll be Friday where we're going to talk about the war in uh, Ukraine on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.